Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Kingdom Driven Family Podcast with your host, Andrea Schwartz. This podcast will equip and empower you to help advance Christ's kingdom through God's primary institution, the family, building a home that serves Christ and His kingdom. Driven Family Podcast. Today's guest is Joaquin Fernandez, who is a husband, a father whose family homeschools, and a filmmaker and documentarian. His most recent work that you might be familiar with go back a couple of years when he participated in the documentary Indoctrination. And he's currently finishing up a documentary on the opioid crisis that faces our country. If you've seen any documentaries on the opioid crisis, a lot of them will point things out. And if they even bother to have a proposed solution, that solution is usually very statist-oriented. Well, Joaquin's film talks about biblical solutions in as much as the application of methods that are in line with God's Word and are actually successful. And as we get into talking about the film a little bit later, he'll go into the specifics of what got him involved in this documentary. Welcome, Joaquin. Thank you, Andrea. Thank you so much for for having me on your show again. I'm going to turn it over to you, sort of orient people to what the opioid crisis is, what it's an opioid, and how did America get to a point where we're facing this kind of crisis? Opium is a um, substance that comes from the poppy flower, and it is grown in different parts of the world. It has a history of thousands of years used as a way of dealing with pain, and I should say physical pain and emotional pain, and also as a recreational drug. Uh, So it has a long history. You could just look it up online. And so there were even the opium wars back between the United Kingdom and China, I believe it was, and all kinds of things throughout history you can see. But one of the things that has been derived from the opium has been painkillers. So in this country, opium became sort of mainstream in the news a little bit before that when, well, actually, after the Civil War, uh, there was a so-called soldier's disease. Many believe and have documented that because of people being given morphine for pain, they became addicted to it. Morphine is a derivative of opium. Then more recently, perhaps in the after the, the Vietnam War, many of our soldiers were fighting in Vietnam and were using drugs there, illicit drugs, uh, heroin. And so they were using heroin and the fear was that they were going to come back to the States after the war and, and we would have a, a big epidemic. Interestingly, that did not happen. 95% of, of the soldiers who came back with a heroin problem kind of kicked the habit, so to speak. So it did not become the, the problem that, that the government feared that, that it would be, which is a kind of an interesting point we can talk about later about why, why that was. And as contrasted with today's sort of conventional wisdom that, you know, once you're an addict, always an addict. But we can talk about that later if you like. And then it was uh, heroin was used as a drug within certain subsets of society, culture, you know, musicians, artists, and there's a whole literary anthology on heroin by users and whatnot. 
Now, more recently, this epidemic that we're in in the middle of was by and large originated by the overprescribing of painkillers. So up until the late 80s, opioids, and this is drugs for chronic pain, so people with cancer or people with severe pain, they were prescribed very carefully, very conservatively by doctors. Then there was a push, a move, and they actually called it like an opiophobia, where doctors were afraid of prescribing painkillers. And there was a narrative, which now we know was coming from the pharmaceutical companies and doctors on the payroll of these pharmaceutical companies to talk doctors into not having this phobia of prescribing pain. And actually, it was sort of a patient's right not to have pain. If you're old enough, you'll remember the introduction of these faces, like a happy face and a sad face. And there was a, you know, what's your pain level from one to 10? And so it became almost a fifth vital sign. And so people were asked, even the way that you were triaged in the emergency room or whatever was based on your pain. So they would take your blood pressure, your temperature, et cetera. And then also, what's your pain level? Now, of course, that's completely subjective because you could say it's a 10 or you could say it's a 3. They're not really measuring it with tools or tests. They're just taking your word for it. Let me interrupt for Mm -hmm. a second here because that's very interesting because that was not the case when I was younger. Right. I was born in the 50s and grew up in my grammar school years in the 60s and you know graduated high school in the early 70s. And my father was a physician and the pain scale was not anything that was ever presented to somebody. And I have to laugh when you say it's totally subjective, because I remember with my first pregnancy, when I headed off to the hospital (laughs) to go into labor, they asked me what my pain threshold was. And that was the first time that I had ever really been even remotely exposed to it. And I gave it a nine. Well, when I finally delivered, that nine was probably let's go to a vacation in Hawaii. So it was totally subjective because I was experiencing something for the first time. And so that was probably the very first time that I was even exposed to it. And I thought, wow, I thought it was just because they cared about me. I didn't have any sort of cognizance that maybe the drive to identify pain was coming from pharmaceutical companies. Right. Well, indeed. And if you've been following this in the news, you could see that many, many states and attorney general's offices have sued the pharmaceutical companies, many of the pharmaceutical companies like Purdue and others. Purdue is the maker of OxyContin. In the 90s, doctors already were kind of, okay, so we're going to do this. We're going to start to prescribe opiates more liberally because the pharmaceutical companies and the FDA had agreed that they were not as addictive because they were time released. So you would take them and, and it would be you know over 12 hours, which later they, they discovered it could be as short as three or six hours that the drug would go into your system. And so they said, well, there's not a, an abuse potential, meaning that people would you know use it for other things or maybe inject it, which people actually did do, or a diversion, you know, like you know you would be prescribed this and you would use it. Well, but they prescribed them in excess and so the market was flooded with these pills. Uh, people were using them, grabbing them from their medicine cabinets, from their parents, their grandparents, or whatever. There were pill mills, doctors who were just prescribing them, just knowing that they were being used by addicts and just for street value. Those were prosecuted. 
the origins of this epidemic that we're in right now was to a great degree produced and fueled by the pharmaceuticals, Purdue in particular, in the 90s, pushing doctors. And this was done by conferences where they would invite doctors to come. And so the physicians, I have a friend who's an ER doctor and he's in the film and he tells me, you know, we go to a conference and you have these medical professionals saying, hey, this is, this is why, this is, you know, this is no problem here. And you believe them. You thought, well, these are the peers. These are the people who know. They probably have studies. But they didn't do studies. They were very, you know, one line here in the New England Journal of Medicine, but it was not a real study. It was not a clinical study on the abuse potential of these drugs. So here we are in the mid-90s, and now we're here we are in 2018, and, and we have a massive problem in our hands with, uh, with the opioid epidemic. And I can't exactly pinpoint when I began to notice it. And I don't watch that much television, but I do watch some things. And how many commercials there are from drug companies directly marketing to consumers saying, ask your doctor for. I remember a time where there weren't such commercials. I mean, you might have your bare aspirin commercial or take this if you have a headache. And so you saw Tylenol and Advil. I remember all those commercials, but never these prescription things. It was always over the counter. And on top of it all, they over time had to put in the caveats on what happened. So you have these smiling people walking around reclaiming their life. And then you listen to the side effects and the side effects are often inclusive of the very reason the person took the medication to begin with. Right. I interviewed for this film, I interviewed a Dr. Anna Lemke at Stanford, and she wrote a book called Drug Dealer MD. And she's an MD. And she, she chronicles this whole thing that we're talking about. One of the problems with what you, you were just talking about right now, you know, you see these ads in magazines and you, you know, if, you, if you flip through a magazine, you have the one ad and then you have two pages of, you know, all the side effects and all the, all the data and all this stuff. But who's going to read all that? You just read the promise. Anna Lemke, she has a term, she, she calls it the Toyotization of medicine. And my friend who's an ER doctor tells me the same thing. He says, the practice of medicine has become, because of insurance companies, because of all kinds of things, has become industrialized in the sense that, you know, you only have 15 minutes with a patient. You, you don't really know what's going on. You don't know if they're having problems in their family or depression. They're just coming to you with a presenting issue of a pain here. And so doctors are well-meaning. They really want, I mean, they went into medicine for the most part because they want to help people and they want to provide care. And so well-intended, they go, here, I prescribe this for you because, you know, you're in pain. And I don't think that it has, a, you know, abuse potential or that it's going to become an addiction problem for you, but they don't understand the whole person behind it. And so because it's industrialized and you, it's quick and you don't have time to spend with each patient, that's a far cry from our doctor when, when we were kids and in some communities where that doctor knew you and maybe, you know, they, they were there when you were born or, you know, they've seen you, your history, sort of the family doctor. And that, that's no longer the case pretty much anywhere now in the States. Exactly. My dad was a physician and he was the kind of physician that would make house calls. And he knew his patients and his patients always knew that they could call him up and he would respond. And there was much greater dimension to helping your patients than just prescribing things. It's not that doctors didn't prescribe things then, they did. But sometimes 
my father would tell someone, you need to lose weight or you need to stop smoking or you need to de-stress your life somewhat. So it really was, as you pointed out, a holistic approach. And unfortunately today with that 15 minute window that the doctor has because medicine then becomes insurance driven, when people do become addicted, isn't the solution to give them another drug rather than to get to the source of the addiction? That's exactly right. And, and one more comment on that. The, the doctor now doesn't know if you had a death in the family, if you're going through divorce, if you've been through some traumatic experience. They don't know any of that. And so they don't know that perhaps you're medicating something other than that physical pain that you have. One of the questions you and I discussed prior was the issue of like, what are some of the gateway drugs to opioids, right? You know, because you, you sometimes think, well, it could be marijuana, you know, that's the problem. And so we're legalizing marijuana in different states, and that's going to be a problem for the opioid epidemic. It's not going to help, it's going to hurt. Or alcohol, pills, like we discussed before, and, and even recreational kids now, they use pills more than beer in many cases, you know, so, so when they get together, they're popping pills that they found. In fact, someone just told me the other day, they call them Skittles parties. The kids, they get medicine from wherever and they put them in a bowl and, and they start popping pills, which is very frightening. But really, if you think about it, the I want to say, maybe it's not a, a gateway drug, but the gateway to this kind of dependency beyond the overprescribing of the painkillers that we discussed just now is isolation, alienation, this emotional pain, depression. When you look at opioid use and, and heroin in particular, and, and by the way, you know, a lot of people start with pills and then you know they, the doctors see, okay, this person's continually coming back with, with supposed pain and, and I'm going to stop doing it. And now, of course, with this whole epidemic and the media and the government and, and everybody talking about it, doctors now are, are not prescribing as, as much. But nonetheless, when you can't get a prescription anymore, you can't get pills you go to heroin because it's cheaper and you can get it on the street and you get a higher high. And so that's, that's how people end up in using heroin. But whatever the case, it is a way to isolate yourself, a way to, to separate yourself from the pain, the emotional pain, the, the different kinds of pain that you are experiencing as a human being. And, and that's where Christians come in, because I think that we and we alone have the answer to all of society's problems. But in particular, the problem of pain. You know, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Problem of Pain, and he, and he, and he talks about pain. And, and so many others have, have written about pain. And pain is a good thing. Pain is, is a reminder and is a, an alert that something's wrong. In fact, there's a, a doctor who was a missionary in India who wrote a book together with, I think, Philip Yancey. And in this book, I think it's called The Gift of Pain. And in this book, he says, you know, you, if you dream of a place where there is no pain, the, he says, I've actually been there. It's, it's called a, a, a leper's colony. You know, lepers don't feel pain. And that's the problem. They gnaw their fingers and, and bones are exposed because they don't feel pain and then they damage themselves. And that's how they, they lose, you know, parts of their body. And so this is not a good thing. You want to have pain. Pain is instructive. Pain is, is something that is sanctifying. And so we as Christians really are in a unique position to address this issue, even if it's not touching your family, but perhaps the opioid epidemic hasn't reached your family. And I, I wouldn't be too cavalier about that because it, it, can, it can definitely. And I, and I know I'm in communication with a father of a homeschool family, eight children, the family that might be your kind of audience to this program and your podcast. They're having their family 
turned upside down because of a problem with heroin in, in their own home. But even if it doesn't impact your family directly, or even someone that you know, which is highly unlikely. There's someone in your extended family or in your community in your church that's dealing with this. But you as a Christian, we are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. And as Christ said, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand that it gives light to all in the house. So we need to shine the light of God's truth into this issue. And even non-believers already saying, hey, we have a societal problem. We have a family breakdown problem. We have a, uh, a problem of, it's, it's an existential problem is the best that they can approximate to it. But we are Christians. We have the gospel. We have the truth. And, and that's one of the motivations for me to make this movie. All right. But we'll get to the movie, but I want to make a couple of comments and ask a question on what you said. So this really is a theological issue because most things will have their roots in a religious world and life view. So number one, we have a society that's been taught pain is bad. You don't want your pain to be a 10. You want it to be a zero or a one. So we don't have a good view of pain. And of course, if you separate yourself from the gospel, it was because of the sin, the guilt, and the pain that Jesus Christ God, the second person of the Trinity, took on human flesh and paid the price. So the fact that people feel guilty is actually a good response to their sin. And in a lot of cases, people medicate themselves when they don't want to confront their own sin. And if we don't even have a definition of sin, if we don't even have a concept, which certainly within our schools, our state schools, there isn't a concept of there is an unchanging standard, and when you deviate from that standard, either by acts of commission or acts of omission, that there are consequences. So in a lot of ways, it sounds like as a society, we have moved into, you have a problem, oh, take this. And sometimes the take this is the medication, sometimes it's alcohol, sometimes it's food. So opioid isn't the only epidemic. We have an obesity epidemic. We have a health crisis that a lot of people are walking around either diabetic or pre-diabetic. And we have an influx of greater incidences of cancer and heart disease and Alzheimer's. So in dealing with the opioid crisis, if we actually get the ax to the root, we more than likely will be able to identify the issues on these other epidemics as well. Indeed, yes. And uh, you're absolutely right about that. This movie, and we'll talk about it later, in it I've had the opportunity to interview all kinds of people. And uh, I'm, you know, 50 plus interviews. One of those interviewees, and I, I just want to point out two to kind of uh, address what you're, you're pointing out. One, one is uh, Sam Quinones. Now, Sam Quinones, I, I don't know, I don't think he's a believer. He may have faith. He's not a, a Christian in the way that you and I would, would say. And, uh, but he wrote this book, Dreamland, The True Tale of America's Opioid Epidemic. And it's a bestseller. And it's, uh, he's been before Congress testifying. And, you know, he's been at the White House. And so he, he's a kind of a go-to person when it comes to this. In his afterword, and, and this is what really attracted me to interviewing him, he says this, if, you, if you'll let me read something. He says, as a country, we acted as if consumption and the accumulation of stuff was the path to happiness. So this is a theological question, like you're saying. We leave family Thanksgivings to go stand in line to buy products. 
Xboxes, tablets, and the like that keep us isolated and that poison our kids. And we go do it as if we had no choice in the matter. We have built isolation into our suburbs and called it prosperity. Added to that mix is the expansion of technology that connects us to the world, but separates us from our next door neighbor. And then later he says, heroin is, I believe, the final expression of values we have fostered for 35 years. It turns every addict into narcissistic, self-absorbed, solitary, hyper-consumers. A life that finds opiates turns away from family and community and devotes itself entirely to self-gratification by buying and consuming one product, the drug that makes being alone, not just all right, but preferable. Now, when you think about that, and this is not a theologian, and another gentleman that I was blessed to be able to interview is Kent Dunnington, who's a professor and the chair of philosophy at Biola University outside of LA. And he wrote a book called Addiction and Virtue Beyond the Models of Disease and Choice. And in his book, he talks about something that perhaps you and I can talk about in a moment. But for right now, he talks about addiction as a prophetic challenge. And so he, he says addicts are kind of these uh, accidental prophets in the sense that they don't speak for God necessarily, but they are heralds of problems. We have a crisis, and it's a, it's a problem with humanity, with our heart. And here are the addicts, because like you said, these, are, these may be heroin addicts, but there are sexual addictions, there are gambling addictions, there are eating addictions, there are smartphone addictions, there are all kinds of addictions, and there are drug addiction and alcohol, of course, and substance abuse. So these addicts are a clarion call to us to say, wake up. In Ephesians 5, 11 and through 16, Paul says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. So we're living in days that are evil. We are seeing people being destroyed by this epidemic and this, this addiction. But we are the light. and We need to let the light of Christ shine on them. And they are actually calling us to do that. I don't know what other call we need to say, it is time for Christians to deal with this from a theological perspective, from a ministry perspective. One of the other things that Kent points out and he asks is, what kind of church do we need to be where addicts can come in and not just come into the congregation, but come into our community of faith and feel that they're not different from us in our humanity? He says, sometimes churches think what we're going to do recovery. We're going to create some kind of program to reach out to these people rather than saying, no, we are a people in recovery because we're being sanctified. We were broken. Such were some of us, just like them. Rather than having a program and people feeling like, you know, I don't fit in, I don't dress like that. Ministry is happening through relationships. And so what kind of church we need to be is a church that understands, I am broken and so are you. So let's enter into a relationship and I will begin to disciple you and show you, you know, that only Christ can fix all of our problems because there are sin problems, just like you said, Andrew. And there's so many churches today that have lost sight of what true and undefiled religion looks like. As mm -hmm. a result, they embrace much more a political conservatism or a political liberalism as the answer mm. to problems. If you call yourself a church, a Christian church, if Jesus Christ and the law word of God is not the focal point, then there's no place to build from. The scripture says, if the foundations are destroyed. Well, 
So if we don't go back to God's law and say, are we doing things the way God says to do them? If it's not built on a firm foundation, I don't care how pretty the structure looks. As a matter of fact, the higher it gets, the more floors you add, the less stable it all becomes. And so when you identify this as a theological problem, it's really a tremendous opportunity for the church if the church will go back to its basics that when Mm. people come into our congregations, it's not like, well, we need to funnel them to the PhD in psychology or to the psychiatrist or the therapist. If you are in Christ, you should be able to walk alongside someone and be a resource without having to turn that person over to the secular professional. Indeed. And Christians are not average persons. You know, we are the sons and daughters of the King of Kings. We are ambassadors of the only one who has the solution to all of mankind's ills. We are the only ones with definite answers to any problem out there, including this one. The parable of building your house on the sand versus the rock, you know, he, he says the key thing is if you hear these sayings of mine and do them, I will liken you to a wise man. You know, you're building on the rock. But if you, if you listen to them and you do not do the sayings that I am telling you, then you're a foolish person and you're, you're building on sand. And I think that, like you said before, we need to do these things that he is saying so that we can be prepared when the storm comes, when this tsunami is coming. It's already here. And so we have this problem. It's not the biggest problem that ever was or anything like that. But this is a massive national problem. And we are the prophetic voice. And we may or may not be prepared to deal with it. But I I think it's not too late to start laying down foundations, like you're saying, so that we can be building a proper response built on the rock of the truth of what God says and not compromise with, well, like you were saying, you know, we'll send them at best, we'll send them to this other church down across town that has a, a ministry for those kinds of people. No, God is calling you. You're it. Tag, you're it. It is in your community. You know, 90% of new users of opiates and, and heroin are white middle-class Americans. You know, so this is not sort of a uh, subculture, a sort of ghetto or some kind of um, inner city. This is not an inner city problem. You don't send them to that church down there that has a program for that. This is your problem. And so you need to be prepared as a church to deal with this in a way that is compassionate, in a way that it is effective, that is informed. And there are resources out there, there are books, there are programs. So really, we have no excuse. Are you interested in Christian education? Would you like to learn how to be a Christian teacher or how to run your very own Christian school with success? The GCS Apprenticeship Program can help. Learn more on our website at gcsapprenticeship.com. All right, so let's segue into the film, Hero in America, which is a play on words because hero in could be heroin. So it's either hero in America or hero in America because you highlight a person who is doing and was doing just what you said. So why don't you tell us about the film and the person who's highlighted in the film and the political shenanigans that happen surrounding all that? Right. Well, Martin Brady is how I found out about Dr. Kishore, Kunjamurtala Kishore. He is a doctor in the Boston area in Massachusetts. 
And so Martin, uh, several years ago, got wind of Dr. Kishore and began writing the articles that many of the people who read Faith for All of Life are very familiar with. And so that's how I kind of first heard about him. I didn't really know what was going on with the opioid epidemic or anything. Maybe I saw a news item here and there, but I wasn't really paying attention to that. And then, of course, this was several years ago, and you could sort of ignore it. So I read Martin's first, second, third articles around there, and I messaged him. And I said, hey, this is fascinating. This will make a great documentary one day. And I wasn't really serious about that. I was just kind of saying, wow, this is fascinating because it has a lot of film for to be effective. It has to have several kind of layers of plot and then several subplots. And so at least that's what I'm interested in. And, and so there was the story of Dr. Kishore, who was a doctor who, who was a pediatric surgeon from India who came in 1977 to this country. His first job was at an addiction medical center, the Washingtonian Medical Center for Addictions in Boston. And that's a kind of a, just a funny story about that. But he, how he ended up getting that job changed his life because he got interested in addiction medicine and started to get trained in that, went to Harvard, and developed over the years a method, which he called the Massachusetts model of de-addiction. So it's a sobriety-based method of treatment, which was holistic. He studied it and he, he looked at the first four weeks of a person's treatment and focused on the body on the first week, on the mind on the second week, on the, the ecosystem, societal, uh, the third week, and on the spirit on the fourth week. And uh, because it is that kind of problem, addiction is a matter of the whole person it involves your body, your heart, which would be the mind, the will, the emotions, the spirit and the soul, the community, including your family, your church, society at large. I mean, this is, this is a big issue. It's not just substance abuse. So Dr. Kishore developed this thing over the years. And in the early 90s, I think it was in 1994, he opened his first clinic. And he did it out of a primary care model. Remember, we were talking about that before. A primary care model, not an addiction place where you would go. If you have an addiction problem, you go over there and, uh, you know, to a treatment place, a detox place or whatever. But he's talking about the stigma, the stigma. Well, that, those, those are places of stigma because you, you go there if you have a drug problem. But if you go to a primary care doctor, you might be sitting next to a person who brought their kid because they have an ear infection or the flu or whatever. So you can kind of go under the radar and just be a regular person coming for this issue. Plus, if you're coming to a primary care doctor, well, you have other problems like everybody else has issues. And that's why we go to the doctor. And so this relationship grows over time. Once you get help and you are, quote unquote, cured from your substance abuse or your addiction, and there's always relapse, you know, to be expected and all that, like in any, anything else, cancer or the flu or whatever, you, you're going to get back and you're going to have to work with this over time. And that's the beauty of having a primary care physician who knows you and who's treating you for other things, because if something flares up, they're there to treat you. So Dr. Kishore developed this method and he, you know, it grew. The zenith of it, he had, I think he had 42 clinics, 52 facilities in, in total across the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. So as Martin chronicled in his magazines, Dr. Kishore came into some trouble with uh, the district attorney's office in Massachusetts. At the time, Martha Copley was, was the attorney general. And so they started to investigate him. And, you know, that's a, it's a complicated thing. We can, if you want to talk about that, I can, I can kind of describe that, but it's a little bit complicated to explain and I can, I can make it succinctly. But to answer your question about Dr. Kishore, he is a pioneer in addiction medicine. And sadly, his treatment method, which 
I think can still be a game changer in how the nation addresses and thinks about the treatment side of this opioid epidemic. Sadly, was buried and left basically for dead. And many, 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 many thousands of people were left without treatment overnight when all his clinics were closed. At this point, he had had to close some because mass health cutting the payments. And so he had to close about a dozen or so clinics leading up to this indictment, all these indictments that he got in the prosecution from the DA's office. And then they closed his clinics overnight. And those were 29 clinics. So by means of summation, because as the person who has jumped into this story, you obviously have hours of comments that you could make. Is it Mm. a stretch to say he was demonstrating success and those who benefit from addicts who don't come off their addictions, who have to have a substitute drug, which when the drug companies provide this to state agencies, so I think it's methadone or other things that, okay, we don't want you on heroin, but we'll, we'll, we'll give you this methadone that you will come and on a regular basis. That is it a stretch to say that the pharmaceutical company said this guy has to be stopped? Well, it wasn't really the pharmaceutical companies. There was a lab a firm. Uh, Dr. Gashore, you know, as all addiction treatment facilities have to do drug tests. That's how you find out if the person, you know, has been using drugs while they're in treatment. So he would do drug tests as needed. And sometimes it would be three, three times a week or whatever. And so he had his own clinics and his own labs. So there was a lab corporation that wanted his business, plain and simple. And uh, this lab corporation was notorious for suing other lab companies to get them in litigation and you know, kind of get them out of business. And so they wanted his business. That's really how this whole thing started on the one hand. On the other hand, you have embarrassment from the state-sponsored methadone clinics their success rate is in the five percentile. Some say two percent, some say seven percent. So let's say five percent success rate, meaning sobriety measured in, in sobriety. Or, in fact, their measurements are participation. They're not, they're not even sobriety based because methadone or suboxone, but methadone is another opiate. So you you get addicted to it as well. And so they call it replacement therapy. So basically, you are on let's say heroin or any kind of other you know, opiates, pills or whatnot. And so you have withdrawals because if you don't take it, then you get all these withdrawals and that's why you take more and then your body gets used to that and have you take even more to get the high that you were having before. And then this is like a snowballing effect. So if you want to get off of that, the methadone model is, well, we'll replace that drug for this drug. And so now we're going to try to wean you off over time from methadone, but you come every day and you take this cup, you know, whatever, 120 milligrams or whatever the prescription is for you. And then you come, you have to come every day and you take this thing. And so you're basically dependent upon that now and then slave to go to the clinic and take it because they're not going to give it to you so that you can take it home and then sell it or something. You have to take it there at the clinic daily. So Dr. Gashore did not use opiates or narcotics. And that's one of the reasons why communities wanted him while in other places, you know, methadone clinics destroy neighborhoods because they attract dealers, drug addicts, all kinds of problems because they, they give out narcotics. Dr. Gashore's clinics did not give out narcotics. They didn't use that. They, he used a drug called Vivitrol, which is now Trexone, which is a monthly injection 
So you really can't divert that. What are you going to do once it's in your body? And you can't abuse it either. And, and plus, it's an opiate blocker where the other methadone and suboxone are agonists, they call them. This one is an antagonist. So basically, it does a, a number on you. You cannot get high. If you are on Vivitrol, it blocks the receptors in your brain that respond to opiates. So if you were to go use heroin, you would feel nothing. So it's a waste of your money. Plus, it deals with the craving. So over time, people were getting healthy. They were getting their lives back. They were becoming productive citizens. And, and Dr. Gershaw's treatment was comprehensive. There were many, many more facets to that beyond the Vivitrol shot. I do want people to see the movie. I do want people to read the articles. And I'll link to that as I promote the podcast. But he, he's, his methods were successful. You said the other methods at best had a 7% success. What, were, what was the percentage of his success? In the 90s, he was at 37% sobriety, which is a year after beginning treatment. And by the time that they closed him down, which was 2011, I think, he was in the 50-some percentile, plus, 50-plus percentile. So half of the people going through his treatment were becoming clean. And he treated an excess of 250,000 people over the years. He was At some point, he was taking on 10,000 new patients a year. So he was making a tremendous dent and a total embarrassment. Plus, a lot of the money that was going to the government-funded you know, methadone clinics was going to him. And so he was highly successful in growing and becoming an embarrassment to, to them. What this sort of reminds me of is all the attacks that come against homeschooling families, primarily because they're not participating in public schools, which means that the school district doesn't get the five, ten thousand, whatever it is, for the students sitting at the desk. And so mm-hmm. a lot of people will then badmouth what happens in homeschooling circles. The kids aren't socialized, they're dangerous things that could be happening, when in actual fact the target is a financial one. And it sounds as though, as much as we'd like to say that everybody who deals with addicts really want them to stop being addicts if you're just replacing one addiction with another, but you're going to get funding for this second addiction as opposed to it going to drug dealers or people who are not government-based, then you can see that there was a true conflict of interest and they probably found something that they could nail him on and take it out of context and basically destroy his success. You're right. Another analogy between the homeschoolers versus public schoolers in this case, is that the the embarrassment part. Colleges, they like homeschoolers, you know. Homeschoolers know how to take care of themselves when it comes to learning, and it's both a financial issue, so motivated by greed, and and that's why the subtitle of the film is Dr. Kishore and the Epidemic of Greed. But it's also an issue of we're supposed to be getting all this money from the federal government and from the state government. We have nothing to show for it, very little. So we're coming to the end of our time. Tell me a little bit about when the film is being released and things that people can do to help support your efforts in getting this message out. We shot the first interview in 2016. That was with Dr. Gashore. Over a couple of days, we interviewed him extensively, as well as Martin Sobrady and another person, Carrie Hume, who was a office manager for one of Dr. Gashore's many clinics. And so since then, we've been to Massachusetts several times and shot 50 plus interviews. Now we're in the post-production stage 
uh, which is editing and all of that encompasses that. So creating motion graphics, the, the narration for the film, the music, soundtrack, color correction, all that kind of stuff. So we want to release the film in April. You can go to heroinamerica.com or thedrugmovie.com. It takes you to the same website. You can support us by making a donation to the Calcedon Foundation. The Calcedon Foundation is our fiscal sponsor. So you can go, there's a link there on our website, or you can go to the calcedon.edu website. And uh, I think it's under give, and you can, you can pick uh, to sort of earmark something for the film. And it, that'll help us tremendously to hire people that we need to hire to do marketing. We're doing it to do Christian reconstruction in whatever way I can with what God has given me, the talents. It's been really rewarding working with Martin Sobrady because his vast knowledge of many aspects of, of many things, including scripture. And so having his worldview, understanding, and the grasp that he has on biblical law has been very helpful in the process of creating this film. Now, let me tie this back into the family, because this is that kingdom-driven family podcast. I'm hoping that many of our listeners don't have this kind of issue in their own family. But as you pointed out, they could and not know it. But I don't think people truly appreciate how this crisis affects their daily life. And since I've been very interested in this subject, my ears have been open to, for example, health professionals. ERs are full of people who have these addictions who have often ended up homeless, and now the ERs are the ones who have to deal with them. And then they have to be admitted into the hospitals. And I know doctors and nurses who are saying that this has become the drop-off point at a lot of county hospitals, that nobody knows what to do with these addicts. And I've talked to people in law enforcement or talked to others who have talked to people in law enforcement, and I heard of a story just recently of a totally addicted woman who was walking around the parking lot where policemen park their cars before they go to work, and she was peeling off the registration stickers because she could sell those in order to make money for her addiction. And she had no problem that she was doing this in a parking lot of a police station. They couldn't arrest her because of laws in California that say that you can't, this was a misdemeanor and we're not going to go ahead and do it, they processed her through, and she was released, and she was back doing it again with seem, seemingly no cognizance of the fact that there were any repercussions because there really don't seem to be any. And that's why I like when you said these people are prophetic to us because if we, as the people of God, don't do something about this, then increasingly these kinds of people with these kinds of mindsets that basically say what my will be done and I don't care what anybody else says, with, with no remnants of care and concern for other people, we're going to be overrun. And so when I called it an opportunity before, you could even call it a selfish opportunity because your neighbors, the people who put together your cars on the assembly line, the people who were driving trucks down the freeway, if these people have these addictions that are causing them to make poor decisions in so many areas, it's going to affect us eventually. Oh, yeah. And it's, it's, it's affecting us in many ways that we are not even aware of. Beyond just being taxed 
first responders, last responders, people, the coroner's offices. I mean, the, the morgues are replete. This is really crazy to think about it. In Ohio, there's a, there's a city that had to rent trailers, like refrigerated trailers, to put the bodies in because they just didn't have room. This is how bad this is. But then you have nurses and, and doctors and EMS people and all kinds of people that are in this sort of general industry just taxed and maxed out. But when you think about a lot of homeschool families have small businesses or people in your churches, you know, who have a small or mid-sized business, the labor force is being affected in many, many, many communities because people can't pass drug tests or they come and then they miss work or they show up late or they're high or they're... So this is impacting communities in ways that sometimes we don't know, we're not aware of, but it's happening just beyond our reach. And if we just, like you said, now start looking into this and you start asking questions, it's incredible. When I travel, I walk around or do anything and people tell me if I have an opportunity, you know, what, what, us, what do you do? And I tell them what I do. Oh, everybody, everybody has a story. Everybody, everybody has a story. So if you just ask people upon listening to this podcast, you go, hey, I just heard something about the opioid epidemic. What do you know about that? Chances are, if you don't know anything or anybody in your life who has been affected, chances are that that person that you ask, they're going to say, yeah, my cousin, yeah, my son, or I know this, or I work in this. I see it firsthand uh, because it's everywhere. And the most recent thing that has come to light with these school shootings and these troubled youth, there is a correlation, not necessarily a causation, but a correlation between the use of drugs and these irrational, what we would call irrational behaviors. But in actual fact, apart from Jesus Christ and God's law word, these aren't really irrational. If what you say is, I'm going to deal with the world in terms of whether or not I'm in pain or not. So the, the chief end is to make sure that either I'm happy or I don't feel anything so that at least I'm not unhappy. And so we're not going to get to the root of school violence or societal violence until we get to the root of the issue, which is mankind individually and culturally reap the curses when they don't follow God's word. That's why the Christian church is the only place and the Christian family where solutions can come out of because then we're attacking the foundation of the problem as opposed to the symptoms. You know, another thing uh, briefly that you might think about this as a, as a homeschool parent who interacts with non-homeschool parents with kids in the public schools is Sam Quinones, the author of Dreamland, in his afterward, he asks, and I'm quoting from his book, he says, I wish someone would study the incidence of opioid addiction as teens and young adults of people who as kids were diagnosed with ADHD and prescribed drugs like Adderall. And in fact, this lady, uh, Anna Lemke at, at uh, Stanford, I think, is, is looking into that. And when you talk to your friends and neighbors or people at church, some of their kids might be on Ritalin or Adderall. And that's a concern because if you think, A, the answer to this problem is a pill, well, guess what? The answer to that problem over there is also a pill. Or B, you might actually become addicted uh, and dependent. If not addicted, there's a dependency on a certain you know, medicating that you're going to be more prone to do as an adult. And so uh, these, are, these are conversations that you can have. And also we know that most of these school murders are done by people 
mostly male, almost entirely boys, who are on psychotropic drugs. So this is not only a topic of conversation that you can have with friends and neighbors, but it's also something that you may want to look into as you, as a homeschool parent, are thinking, well, you know, I'm going to homeschool the primary years and then I'm going to send them to the school for, for, for you know, high school or whatever. These are things that you need to be thinking about because, and even as homeschool parents, do you keep your kids in, indoors mostly? Do, they, do you let them run? Do, you know, and and do, are you in a co-op? Are, are they with other kids? You know, interacting. And, and because, again, isolation, alienation is the breeding ground for this kind of addiction that really is a form of worship because it is seeing in this experience of being high almost a spiritual experience of some addicts have described it being embraced. It's what I was looking for all my life. And they feel right. that, ah, oh, this is bliss. And it's, it's a counterfeit, no wonder, it's pharmakia which is idolatry, really, it's uh, witchcraft. So the opportunity for the people of God is to recognize that in Christ and as part of our Great Commission, we are to help people with those aspects of life where they have a counterfeit God, whether it's themselves or another religion that doesn't acknowledge the true God. And I think your film and the articles that you basically were the inspiration for you doing this film along with a sincere and orthodox view of God's word being the only solution to the problems mankind faces, I think we can get a lot of people on board and not feeling as though they need to defer to experts. In a very real sense, we can all become experts. Indeed. I covet your audience's prayers. If they want to support our work, uh, I welcome that as well. And uh, pray that God would use this film to, on the one hand, vindicate Dr. Kishore, and on the other hand, broadcast a model of treatment that may very well be a game changer in today's problem that we're facing this opioid epidemic. But more importantly, that a Christian film does that is a testimony to the light of the gospel and to Christians being the salt and light and being ambassadors of Christ in this world. And so I would just covet your prayers that we would be able to do this in a way and find the audience and it may have an impact far beyond what we've even dreamt of and all to the glory of God. Thank you for joining Andrea Schwartz and the Kingdom Driven Family Podcast. Holding up the family and self-government as a true and lasting means of transforming society. Please visit thekingdomdrivenfamily.com and reconstructionistradio.com.